All right, you want to get out your message outline. I've already gotten a few comments on my tie today. It's like a Christmas tie. I only wear it once a year. Probably only worn it eight to ten times since I've been here. We need to pray. <laughs> so let's do that. It's a long text, and we're going to go through it in some detail today. So uh, let's go ahead and pray and get started. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we always need it. We need to be reminded of the gospel of Christ and his cross. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the issues of our lives, and particularly when we struggle as individuals and as a church with the issues that come out of our idolatry. Thank you that this letter, Corinthians, points us to Christ and points us to his cross. So bring us to the cross Bring us to repentance, bring us to your table, and bring us to yourself. We pray by the power of the Spirit, help us see Jesus. Amen. As Amelia scrolled through her social media feed last night, she felt depressed. In every picture, her friends were perfect. Why couldn't she be them? Her life was boring compared to theirs. And besides seeing plans she had been left out of, she noticed how many more comments and likes everyone else received on their photos. I need to delete my post, she thought. I'll just look like a loser if I don't get more likes. Her friend Emma was scrolling through social media that same night. Not to pick on anybody, I picked my granddaughter's names. The... Uh, and Emma couldn't decide what to post, but she knew she needed to decide quickly. It was important to post at just the right time to get the most likes. Typically, she got hundreds within minutes, which gave her great satisfaction. She loved the attention and had become dependent upon it for her self-confidence. For Emma and Amelia and the vast majority of teens today, social media is now the single greatest influencer of their perceived identity and worth. While struggles with self-image are nothing new, the degree to which they now struggle, along with all of the accompanying behavior, mental, uh, emotional uh, sin issues, the depth of this struggle should sound an alarm for us in the church. In the past, people generally were uh, somewhat blissfully unaware of what their peers were doing at any given moment. So they're free to enjoy who they're with and what they were doing. But now there is never a time when they aren't faced with a steady stream of images that become the backdrop to how they view themselves and how they understand the world around them. What teens see on their screens becomes their truth. And the biblical truth 
about who God is and what he says essentially has no bearing. So they scroll through Instagram, they see friends who are prettier, skinnier, more popular, more accomplished, and who seem to live more exciting lives. They also see what they've been left out of and wonder why wasn't I included. And they compare everything wrong about themselves with the presumed perfection of others. Of course, it's only an illusion that everyone else has it all together. But for the teens, and much of this is true for adults as well, who are caught in this comparison trap, it's easy to think they're the only ones struggling. Looking through the grid of self, numbers become the basis for determining worth. Maybe the number of likes on a picture, the number of continuous Snapchat streaks, the total number of followers. And in no way are numbers limited to social media. Just as important is the number on the bathroom scale, the dress size, the SAT, the GPA, or any of the multitude of other numerical ways to determine how they compare with their peers. And even achieving the right number is not enough because the standard is constantly changing. There are always others doing better at more. Now Romans 12, uh, 15 says that uh, as believers, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, just sort of a natural outflow of loving your neighbor as yourself. But where sinful hearts collide with this culture of comparison, seeing others doing better at more drives wedges into relationships. So in any wonder, teens feel more isolated today than ever before. And believing that everyone else has a problem-free, perfect life, we get saturated with feelings of anxiety and stress and loneliness and worthlessness. And with such a skewed view of reality, what teens are trusting in is not Jesus' perfect record for them, but their own effort. They think if they can only make themselves somehow perfect, and not just in one area, but in every area, then life would be better and they'd be okay. So they set out trying, not realizing that this added pressure of unattainable perfectionism is only taking them down a path to greater despair. And the mounting pressure to perform and the despair that follows from failure to measure up has given rise to a soaring number of teens dealing with depression, anxiety, eating disorders, cutting, and so on and so forth. Even teenagers who look like they have it all together are often struggling. In fact, research shows that while this affects teens across all socioeconomic levels, it's teens from upper-middle-class environments like Loudoun County, Virginia, where expectations and pressures are the greatest. And they compromise are, are comprised the largest group of teens now dealing with mental health issues and substance abuse and promiscuity and same-sex attraction and gender identity confusion. All of these struggles point to something deeper beneath the surface. 
So while it's easy to zero in on a particular issue or a behavioral sin or social media as the problem, none of these is the primary issue. According to Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus said, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. Therefore, to treat only the surface symptom or to shift the blame to something other than the sin within will never bring the healing rest and worth that these teens and many adults so desperately need. The root problem is the heart. For whatever the heart wants more than God will lead to the truth about God being exchanged for a lie. In other words, an idol. And ever since Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God was withholding good by not allowing them to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, that same lie that God is not enough and life must be found somewhere other than him has been fleshed out within every human heart. For teens in particular, social media is an easy platform where this lie can flourish. All it takes is one look, and the truth gets blurred by comparison, and the heart is primed for Satan's lies. You're not like them. You're not good enough. You're not popular enough. You need to be skinnier. You need a new wardrobe. You're not rich enough. No one will want to date you. Your life is boring. You're worthless. You don't measure up. And the more they compare, the more these lies become truth. And what God says is actually true about them, that they're deeply loved and they're made in his image, is forgotten. So in an attempt to secure the identity and worth they think they lack, they turn to the false idols of acceptance, approval, appearance, perfection, and performance. And these false idols are relentless, requires enormous amounts of effort, to constantly satisfy them. If you think about it, you realize this is not a new problem. This is exactly what the Corinthians were dealing with without the benefit of social media. And as I wrote to you earlier this week, our subject for today is actually the danger of idolatry and the Lord's Supper. What does the Lord's Supper have to do with the danger of idolatry? Nothing and everything. Because the Lord's Supper obviously is not about idolatry. It's being presented as the antidote to idolatry. And so it's needed because the idolatry of the Corinthians has manifested itself, as we've seen in 11 chapters so far, with hurtful division and painful disunity and sexual immorality and misunderstanding marriage, uh, confusions of gender roles and gender identity, people demanding their rights at the expense of others, the all-too-common failure to serve and encourage one another, disordered worship, serious doubts about the faith, all sorts of similar things to what's going on uh, in our culture and in particular with our teens today. The struggles haven't changed. They've just become more magnified and more public. The Apostle Paul has been teaching us about the effects of idolatry and how it brings us great harm and compromises the faith and damages our relationships. However, we finally here at the end of chapter 11, he reminds us that there is one place where we can deal with all of these issues all at the same time. And that's by coming in faith 
and repentance to the table of the Lord. The Lord's Supper is the place where God not only nourishes us, presents his forgiveness of us, reminds us of our union with Christ and our unity with each other. The purpose of this table is to overcome idolatry, find our identity in Christ, and renew our covenant with God and with his people. And in order to accomplish this, the apostle points out a number of uh, actions that occur in coming to the Lord's table. What are these actions and why are they necessary? We're going to take them one at a time, and we're going to start with the purpose of unity. The purpose of unity. Starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then jumping down to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So now the Lord's Supper has already been introduced in 1 Corinthians 10 in the context of whether Christians are allowed to eat food that's been offered to idols. And certainly, Paul doesn't want them to eat food that's been offered to idols if it's in the context of some pagan cult or pagan ritual. He says there, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word participation is almost always in the New Testament translated as fellowship. And that's what's at stake here. It's an expression of our oneness as a fellowship. It's actually made clear in the next verse, verse 17, that says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, those verses in 1 Corinthians 10 remind us um, that the bread is to remind us of Jesus' body broken on the cross, but also that the New Testament sometimes speaks of Jesus' body as the church. So a further connection is made here. If the body of Christ is symbolized in the bread and the church is the body, there is at least some symbolic connection between the bread and the church. Listen again. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So when we take the bread, we're saying that we all belong to the one body, just as this bread has all come from the one loaf. We're all one. And so it's within that context, then, that this really harsh language of chapter 11 is given really as a rebuke. Now, we start there in chapter 11 at verse 17. Paul says, in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. 
In other words, your meetings are doing more harm than good. And the one place where the rebuke is the harshest concerns the Lord's Supper. It's not the disputes over tongues or head coverings or eating meat offered to idols, but communion. Why? Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. A lot of people think uh, verses uh, 18, the end of 18 and 19 are sarcastic uh, or ironic. Um, It's not sure. I think Paul's just rebuking them. He says there must be factions among you in order that those, and here's the sarcastic part, those who are genuine must be recognized. This clearly they think some people are more genuine than others. It doesn't say you're those who are spiritually stronger or more mature or anything. It's more that those who are genuine, you know, the real Christians. It's classic Pauline understatement. You bet your life he believes this. So why does he say it? Because he's mad. There's disunity at the Lord's Supper. In order to understand this, you have to get sort of a picture of the historical context. In the first century, churches didn't have buildings. They met in people's homes uh, for worship, usually in the home of a wealthy person who had a house big enough to host everyone. Because they met in homes, it was common for the church to spend time eating as part of their gathering. They'd bring food with them. And the other thing to remember is in the Roman world, there's no weekends. People work seven days a week, especially the working class. So the church normally met Sunday evenings when the workday was over. The Sunday morning worship thing didn't develop for actually several hundred years. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this is an innovation. Who knew? Um, But those things help us understand what's going on. They, They would essentially come for dinner and have worship after dinner on Sunday. But the wealthy church members, you know, had a lot more flexibility uh, with their schedule, and they could show up a little early. And the poorer or the working class people didn't have as much flexibility. You know, they're at the mercy of their employer. And so they would show up a little later. And not only that, but the wealthier people uh, liked to buddy up with the other wealthy people. And so they would leave out the poorer people. The wealthy people arrived early and had plenty of food, probably sat in the dining room. But when the poorer people arrived, there was no room left. And often they would have to sit in uh, either in the atrium, if it was a big enough house. Uh, often those houses had sort of a center courtyard. Or they have to eat outside because there was no room inside. And the wealthy people thought that their wealth was an indication that they were genuine Christians who had God's favor. I'm rich because God likes me more. Too bad for you. And they would even sit in special seats where they could be recognized as being the especially blessed or genuine ones. So they're having this worship service. They're supposed to be breaking bread together in a sign of unity, and it's turned into a disaster. There's people that are having fellowship, and they have lots to eat and drink, and others are sort of dragging in at the end of a long day, and they get the leftovers. And some would have nothing more than dry bread. And so 
all the divisions in the church that Paul's been addressing for 11 chapters are now being brought out into the open through this very meal that's supposed to serve um, as an expression of unity. And he says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And he tells them what to do, verse 33. So then when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He's telling them this is not the time to be showing off. This is not the time to be taking sides. This is the time to express unity around the table of the Lord. Now, we're not structured the same way. We're all here more or less on time. Nobody's brought the good food, which she's only going to share with her friends. But it is true that sometimes we bring all of our divisions all of our self-centeredness, all of our pride and prejudice, all of our personal animosity and bitterness. So at the very point that we're to remember that we're sinners before a holy God, all the resentments are suppressed, pushed under the surface. And the whole act can become one of hypocrisy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we eat and drink the Lord's Supper together, This is the time to confess our one-upsmanship. I'm not even sure if that's a word. But to confess our arrogance. And to start loving one another for Christ's sake. That's the first purpose, unity. Secondly, we have the purpose of remembering, verse 24. The purpose of remembering. uh, Starting at verse 23. It says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, most of you know as well as I do, there's been great disputes across the history of the church on the significance and meaning of the Lord's Supper and all of its elements. And uh, I'm not going to get into any of those disputes here. But what is clear is there's a great emphasis on the importance of remembering, and in specific, remembering Christ's death. I'm persuaded one of the reasons why the Lord gave this simple uh, rite is because he saw the church would inevitably be involved in all kinds of things that would take believers away from the basics of the faith. I mean, what kind of things do churches have to deal with uh, in the course of a year? I mean, there's the full range of Christian doctrine. There needs to be preaching and teaching on the spirit, preaching and teaching on the family and relationships, preaching and teaching on evangelism, the doctrine of God, handling wealth, life and death. We need to preach on so many things. And it's easy to forget the basics when you're trying to check off all the boxes. And then there's the pragmatic things, which take even more time. You still have to deal with church finances. We have plans and programs and events. There's various ministries and committees and community groups. And then you have the concerns of Presbyterian General Assembly and on and on and on it goes. And you can go from one year to the next And never spend more than a few minutes 
reflecting on the death of Christ. And here, Jesus insists that we go back to basics. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In some ways, just thinking about this, it's, it's tragic beyond words that Jesus felt we needed something like this. Are we going to forget him? Are we going to overlook the cross? But we do. I mean, how can we play our petty relational games when we remember Christ and his cross? How can we be so unconcerned about lost friends and neighbors when we remember Christ and his cross? How can we be unconcerned about living holy lives when we remember Christ and his cross? How can we be unmoved by the love of God when we remember Christ and his cross? When he said, here's the bread and the cup, that was expected. When he did this first time at the Last Supper, at the Passover, you had bread and you had a cup, but at the Last Supper, there was no lamb. Why? Because on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm the lamb. This is the night unlike all other nights. When Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, I'm the main course. He's saying, I'm the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I'm the one. And on that night, at the Last Supper, Christ is saying, my death is the climactic event towards which everything in the history of salvation has been moving until now. Every sacrifice, every liberation, every prophet, every priest, every king, every deliverer, all has been pointing to me. Because tonight, I'm not just going to deliver you from this or that slavery or this or that social or economic problem or this or that mental or emotional idolatry. This night, I'm going to deal with sin and death itself. This is the night unlike all other nights. And when you take the bread and the cup, there is a direct connection between what's happening now and what happened at the Last Supper. And we're not supposed to forget that. Unity, remembering, and third, we have the purpose of proclaiming. Verse 26. I think this is the key verse. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word for proclaim is the regular word for preaching, for heralding, for evangelizing. But how can that be? Because isn't the Lord's Supper just for Christians? I mean, we have, may have non-Christians at our worship services. We usually do. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, uh, we have a warning um, to not come to the table without faith in Christ. And so if this is the first time um, that you're in our church, you may find what we do a bit strange. So let me explain it. We're all going to take a little bit of bread and we're going to eat it. And we're going to take a little cup and drink that. And the reason we do that is because Jesus told us to. Now, he didn't tell us because there's some kind of magic, but because we recognize that it's fundamentally important to think back to Jesus' death and to remember what it means. Now, if you're not a Christian, it would frankly be blasphemous for you to take the elements, but you ought to watch as Christians take these 
uh, elements, the bread and the cup, not because they're better than anyone else. They're not, trust me. Um, but because they know they've been forgiven by this Christ who gave his life on their behalf. And so they remember and they repent and they come to the table. And as you watch, you'll see and hear the good news of God's redemption. His buying back of sinners. His love for us at the cost of his own life. And thus, every Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel. That's what the text says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Physically getting up, walking forward, coming to the table, and eating and drinking the communion meal is a physical proclamation that you are a Christian who has faith in Christ, who repents of your sin, who is part of the church, and who strives to love the people here, even the ones you don't want to. Coming to the table is a physical proclamation of Christ and his cross. And if you don't want to do that, then don't come to his table. So how do you know if you should come or not? Well, that's the next purpose, which is the purpose of examining. The purpose of examining, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now it's important to understand the text actually says in an unworthy manner. It's not that you and I are worthy or unworthy, but it's the manner of our approach. This is an adverb describing how we come, not an adjective describing who we are. Of course, we're unworthy. That's why Christ died. But there can be a worthy manner of coming to the table. It's not based upon any goodness in us. That's not the point. How can we possibly come to the Lord's table and say, I remember, I remember that Christ died for my sins when in fact we're nurturing sin. To say, I remember that Christ died because of my bitterness when I'm nurturing bitterness. Or I remember that Christ died to forgive me of all my hate and self-centeredness when I'm loving my hate and self-centeredness is to approach in an unworthy manner. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we need forgiveness. No, we are not worthy in and of ourselves, but we dare not approach the Lord's Supper that focuses on Christ and his cross in a manner in which we don't care about the sin which is still carefully nurtured and flourishing in our lives. So what then is a worthy manner? We're told, verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Jesus is simply saying that unless you recognize the body and blood of the Lord to which these elements point, the body and blood of the Lord which these elements are designed to make you remember, then how can you take these elements and say, I remember when you're cherishing sins that shows you've forgotten? How wrong would it be to say, yes, Lord, I accept your forgiveness now please let me go out and sin some more because that's what I really want. 
But that's what we're doing when we come before the Lord and take these elements and by taking them proclaim that we remember and then go right back to all the sinful habits and behaviors and thinking that that's what we want to cling to because they're ours. Not at all. This is a time, this is an opportunity for examination, a time for confession, a time for repentance, a time from turning away from sin and turning to Christ. It doesn't matter if it's the first time or the 500th time. Unity, remembering, proclaiming, examining. And finally, we have the purpose of discerning. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a lot there. I'm going to sort of focus in on the very first part. Because we also forget that this is not an individual exercise. We think, I eat the bread, I drink the cup. Uh, I'm the one, you know, praying and repenting on my sin. It's about me. But this is written to the church. It's all written in the plural sense. It's about us. It's a corporate exercise. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of what Christ has accomplished in making us one. It doesn't make sense that we would uh, eat the Lord's Supper um, while we're divided. When that happens, we sin against Christ by taking the Lord's Supper while we're divided. And the reason we sin against Christ when we take the Lord's Supper when divided is because we have first sinned against each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 25. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And Apostle John said in 1 John 4, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So here's what I think Paul is saying. Negatively, we're not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Positively, we're to discern the body of the Lord. That is, we're, come, we're to come to communion understanding that even though this is just a bread and a cup, when we eat and drink believing the gospel, we get Jesus by faith. He comes to us and nourishes us and strengthens us. It's no mere memorial, but it's a place where Christ, by his grace and the power of the Spirit, meets sinners and encourages and comforts and strengthens them to trust him. And if you understand that's what's going on, well, then it changes everything. Because then you would never come to the Lord's table with sort of a casual attitude or a flippant attitude. You wouldn't come in the middle of division with your brothers and sisters. You wouldn't come holding on to some sin that you refuse to repent of all of which is taking place in Corinth. No, you come with reverence and awe and expectation and anticipation that as you eat the bread and drink the cup by grace through faith in Christ, that he himself comes to you and by his spirit sustains and strengthens you. This is the place where you overcome sin and idolatry. 
because you come to Christ and his cross and he has overcome sin and idolatry on your behalf. Going back to Emma and Amelia from the opening illustration. In different ways, both girls have the same problem. Both girls are looking for their worth in false idols. One thinks she finds it, and the other knows she doesn't. But both are believing the lie that something other than Christ can fill them. And to break free, their hearts must be exposed and those specific lies uncovered so they see their need of something greater, or in fact, someone greater. Knowing who Jesus is and what he has done for them, his perfect performance on their behalf is the power that will enable uh, teens, and again, many adults, to quit trying to mold their identity through performance, appearance, uh, acceptance, perfection. Being declared right means everything good about Jesus is given to the believer, and God now views the believer, his child, as perfect because Jesus was perfect. His child now stands without accusation, without condemnation, but is righteous. Therefore, if a struggling teenager thinks they failed to measure up, which they probably have, Jesus has already measured up perfectly for her. means when a believing teen looks to a false idol for worth and acceptance, Jesus has never taken his eyes off the Father for that teen. When a teenager looks to another for affirmation, Jesus has never bowed to others' opinions of him. Understanding the sacrifice of Christ is the key for teens and adults to find their real worth and their true identity. Neither girl, apart from the gospel breaking in and reorienting her to the truth of who Jesus is for her, will find what they're looking for. The intensity and the drive to be great, to feel worthy, will only increase as the years go by. And instead of growing in maturity, the girls will grow more and more self-obsessed and less secure. Only by the power of the gospel will Emma and Amelia find that everything they long for, they already have in Christ. Being filled in him, knowing his acceptance and his uh, performance and his perfection for them is what will enable them to stand no matter what the world says about them. Looking full into his face at his worth, at his work, will be what frees them from the idolatry of self and find themselves firmly rooted in the identity of their Savior. And that happens, Paul's telling us, when they come to this table. Here is where Christ and his cross is remembered and proclaimed and discerned. I know we have some Lord of the Rings fans here. And in the last book, The Return of the King, Pippin is in Minas Tirith, the capital of Gondor. And they're under siege. And he is sure they're all going to die because there's these horrible armies coming to besiege them. And at the last minute, he hears a horn in the distance, right? The horn of Rohan. And when he hears the horn, the knights of Rohan ride to the rescue in this mighty massed cavalry charge. It's actually one in the second book as well. 
And many die, but they break the siege and they save the people, including Pippin. And there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the quick summary. Now, in the book, but not in the movie, we're told that for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn in the distance without breaking into tears. Why? Because the horn was a physical and audible reminder of his salvation. And when he heard the horn in the distance, he relived his salvation. It connected him to the past. He remembered the sacrifices of the people who died to save him. No matter how grumpy he was, he wept in gratefulness when he heard a horn in the distance. Because it reminded him that every single moment of the rest of his life was a gift of grace. This table is a horn in the distance. This is something you hear. This is something you see. This is something you taste. This will connect you to your salvation to remember the sacrifice of the one who died to save you, and it will change your life. So come, remember, proclaim, repent, and discern. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, as always, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. We confess there are times when we take worship for granted, when our hearts are cold and our minds are elsewhere. There are times when we're indifferent towards you, or where our pride or prejudice disrupt our fellowship and make us loveless when we ought to be loving. Save us from the problems we saw in Corinth that required such a harsh rebuke. Help us to learn uh, from the word that we might not need to learn from hard providence. Teach us to remember your cross, proclaim your death, and repent of our sin. As we come to the Lord's table, enable us to be nourished and strengthened by Christ, his body broken, his blood shed for us, as we come in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And for the benediction. From the book of Acts, chapter 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God bless you. See you next week.